It is time for a new seminar where we get detailed expert analysis from our wonderful panelists and our panelists is, of course, from Hongik University's College of Law, Professor Cho Hee-kyung. Hello. Hello, good morning. Good morning, Professor Cho. So we're going to talk about this controversial court decision which dismissed the second lawsuit by the survivors of sexual slavery during World War II at the hands of the Japanese government on the grounds of state immunity. So the first question on this, because we need your legal expertise uh, for people like myself who usually think of courts having rulings and the so-called idea that the ruling sets precedent. So the same court, but a different judge back in January, upheld the similar claim by these 12 plaintiffs against the Japanese government ordering it to pay each of the plaintiffs in that earlier case 100 million won. Now, this court, different judge, dismisses a similar case with 20 plaintiffs saying it has no jurisdiction. So again, I'm confused about the precedent issue. How how does this happen? Right. Uh, And you very well may be, uh, you know, the same court, uh, you know, with just three months apart, completely different decision. How can this be? So, these two judgments came from uh, the Seoul Central District Court Civil Division. The first one was from Civil Division Number Thirty Four, and the second one from Fifteen. Um, and as you said, the first one actually upheld the the claim by the the surviving victims of uh, the military sex slavery system, and the second one said, "No, we don't have jurisdiction." Now, first of all, um, at the same court level. Well, because we are a civil law system, we actually don't have a, uh, a a system of precedence as such, not like in the common law countries. So in common law countries, uh, there is actually a binding rule that uh, judgments from higher court uh, on same issues or similar legal principles are binding on the lower courts. But first of all, these are two decisions from, from the same level of court, in fact, the same court. So although the first decision might have had some influence on the second decision, it certainly doesn't have any binding power Mm. uh, at all. So that's one thing. Um, In terms of the actual substance of the the judgments themselves, obviously uh, all those people who care about this uh, this issue and also the, the surviving victims were very disappointed by the second uh, judgment. But in fact, under the existing international law, it was the first decision that was the outlier. That was kind of the exception to Mm. the rule because there is this basic, very fundamental principle of international law of state immunity. Um, In Korean, it's simply called kukka myonje, and people sometimes sometimes confuse this concept with sovereign immunity, so state immunity and sovereign immunity, but these are actually two different things. Sovereign immunity is where uh, the state cannot be sued in its own court, in its domestic court for certain things, but state immunity means that the state cannot be sued in foreign courts for whatever conduct it might have, have done. And in the past, we used to have this principle of absolute state immunity, So regardless of what the state uh, did, it cannot be sued, full stop. Um, And that's kind of reflecting the fact that on the international stage, there is no world police, there is no global government. Each uh, state is basically absolute kind of ruler of its own. 
and other states cannot interfere with its actions. And so that's the idea that's kind of carrying through. But obviously, law is not something that's static. And particularly uh, throughout the 20th century, post-World War II, and all these sort of atrocities against human rights that were committed, Mm. um, international human rights have developed significantly. And so there is now this new theory which says, okay, states may have immunity, immunity, but they shouldn't be able to use that to uh, escape liability or responsibility for really heinous crimes, things like, you know, uh, crimes against humanity, uh, war crimes, uh, genocide, etc. Alongside that, there were also uh, some other states that have passed their own domestic legislation to actually limit uh, state immunity in some cases. These mostly concerned commercial transactions. So, for example, you know, uh, there have been instances where, uh, you know, um, an embassy of another country might enter into a lease, uh, you know, in that sort of host uh, state and then forfeit on the lease without paying, you know, mm-hmm. rent. And and particularly also in New York, where there are lots and lots of diplomats because uh, the UN is headquartered there. Um, there were like so many cases of illegal parking, <laughs> parking, and mm. then uh, diplomats not paying fines. And so, for example, the UK and the US have each passed their own um, law, domestic law, to essentially limit state immunity in certain circumstances, mostly uh, with regard to commercial transactions um, and certainly acts that are not sovereign in nature, so not, not sovereign activity, but things like declaring war, um, you know, that's certainly a sovereign activity. Right. And so what our uh, court did in the second instance is basically apply the existing principle of international law and said, okay, look, we know that this is, you know, this was a heinous act that Japan did, but unfortunately, we simply don't have jurisdiction because our state immunity does apply in in these cases, Mm. whereas in the first decision, they kind of um, applied this newly developing theory that state immunity doesn't apply uh, when uh, there are serious human rights violations and abuses. They argue that, you know, really fundamental human rights like right to life and uh, the prohibition against torture, things like that, should take precedence over these rules of state unity. Uh, so what, what are called uh, peremptory norms mm-hmm. or use cosines of international law. You know, they are much more important and much more valuable, so you know, a, a higher order than some mere rule of state immunity. That's the argument. But that's not really a generally accepted rule of international law. Now, thank you for helping us understand the ruling better. Nevertheless, I I think a lot of people still very much disappointed by that latest ruling. But the question overall, even if the uh, courts decide and rule in favor of the plaintiffs, it's a question of enforcement, right? Japan's declined to defend themselves during these cases. I mean, the earlier case, are the grandmothers able to receive any compensation at the end of the day? You are absolutely right. So although uh, the first court decision says, yes, 
uh, you know, each victim should be awarded 100 million won um, in damages. Uh, there is a real question as to well, will they ever be able to actually, you know, receive uh, the damages? And in fact, that's one of the reasons why uh, state immunity rule exists because it's often very difficult, if not virtually impossible, for a foreign state to enforce a judgment against another state, um, particularly where you know the state that's being sued refuses to accept you know the, the jurisdiction or the judgment of that foreign state. So, for example, how can we recover this money from Japan when Japan uh, hasn't even appeared in the court or you know uh, defended itself? Um, there is the this idea of compulsory execution of judgment. Mm-hmm. So this is where <clears throat> you are essentially uh, sort of forcefully seizing the assets of the party and then maybe selling them off to you know um, realize the funds and then using that to pay the the damages. But what kind of assets does the Japanese government have in Korea? Well, you know, there is the Japanese embassy. <laughs> Maybe um, I don't know if they own the property or if <laughs> they're simply leasing it. Right? Um, there are maybe property inside the the, um, the building that you know they might be able to kind of go in and seize. But obviously, you know, what would that do to the diplomatic relations between Japan and Korea? And so I can't really see that happening. Mm. And even in the first case, um, you know, the original judgment was handed down in. In January, but then uh, later on in March, uh, after uh, a change of judges in the division, the court actually came out on its own and said, uh, because the victims had also asked for the costs of the proceedings to be awarded against Japan, and the court said, sorry, but we are not going to rule uh, on costs for you because it's uh, simply not feasible uh, for you to be able to recover costs in this instance. So, and yeah. that's actually a very un- unusual uh, move for the court to make. Um, I've read in the media, some have speculated that um, President Moon, in his uh, New Year's interview back in January, uh, but that which was conducted after the first decision came down, he said, oh, this is very awkward. <laughs> and he said he hoped that uh, this compulsory execution uh, wouldn't occur. He was concerned about, you know, what it would do to the, the bilateral relations uh, with, with Japan. And some have speculated if uh, the courts uh, didn't actually reflect that yeah. particular thing. But I don't, I don't think so. I think this was the court actually exercising independent judgment. And it was simply following the the established uh, rules of international law. That um, reference to diplomatic relations and the sensitivities of all of that, uh, there was something about the second court that didn't sit well with a lot of people who especially did not like what the Pakane administration did. They referred to that 2015, that very controversial 2015 agreement between uh, South Korea and Japan uh, supposedly addressing the comfort women issue and calling for an engagement in diplomatic efforts. Uh, what, What are your thoughts? You're right. Uh, uh, people thought that you know this was court overstepping the mark, uh, you know, sort of calling upon the government to resolve this issue diplomatically, um, and certainly it rankled uh, uh, 
some people and, you know, it might have been uncomfortable. But the reality is there is only so much that you can do uh, in within the the jurisdiction of court to actually resolve this issue. I mean, this is something that really should have been resolved through uh, um, essentially sort of you know, bilateral discussion and, and cooperation between the two states a long time ago. But uh, when one side refuses to acknowledge responsibility uh, and the other side had also uh, kind of not really maintained a, a steady course on the issue throughout the, the 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 long period that it's been festering, it's really difficult to find a diplomatic uh, solution. Um, but the, the 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 general sort of you know view or the consensus by most scholars and commentators is that uh, even if this case gets appealed and goes to the Supreme Court in Korea, ultimately it's not really going to give the satisfaction, except in a kind of moral sense. Um, and the real issue of uh, actually getting a proper apology from Japan as a dresser would still remain. Now, Japan would argue that, well, we've made apologies, and this is a, a valid treaty between Korea and Japan, the 2015 treaty. And in fact, that that is true, uh, and even uh, the current government has acknowledged that this is a valid and effective agreement between the two, uh, foreign st- two sovereign states, mm-hmm. Japan and Korea, now the the problem was that when they were uh you know um making this 2015 agreement they never really consulted the victims the the Ryambu harmonies uh, properly mm-hmm. so uh there's also this other principle um not just in international law but uh sort of growing kind of um jurisprudence regarding victims of particularly sexual crimes that you really have to sort of uh, resolve things from the victim's perspective. And so Mm -hmm. the the agreement had been criticized consistently on that basis. But it doesn't take away from the fact that this is still a valid treaty between the two countries. And so um, we may not not like how the judgment had referred to it, but it doesn't take away from the effect of the agreement. So some might say that this court decision was based on political pressure. What, what pressure would that be from the Japanese government or pro-Japanese conservatives? What kind of pressure do you think that the court would have made to, to have a decision like this? Well, I think it was actually, um, they were referring to sort of unspoken pressure from our own government. The fact that uh, President Moon had sort of uh, described the first court decision as being somewhat, you know, awkward and mm-hmm. difficult and um, that he hoped that, you know, no compulsory execution of the judgment would take place and, and things like that. Uh, and also um, confirming that, yes, you know, uh, Korean government does acknowledge that the 2015 uh, treaty is a, a valid and effective agreement uh, between uh, the two governments. And they point out the fact that the judges uh uh, of that that division that handed down the first uh, deci- decision uh, were rotated out and sent to different kind of division, and the the judges were replaced. But you know, I think that's really reading too much into it. Um, mm. 
or almost like kind of conspiracy theory yeah. because uh, the, the, the judges' rotation is something that happens very periodically, and it was certainly time when those judges had to um, move to different stations. And as I said, this second decision is really kind of uh, simply re- restoring right. or uh, reconfirming the existing uh, international law. Uh, and the first decision was actually uh, an outlier. And that's why the first decision mm. also generated a lot more comment uh, in among the, the international legal scholar community uh, as well as in the, in the international media. Because um, I know that some people have also referred to these other cases um, from Italy and Greece uh, against the state of Germany. So uh, a similar thing, uh, but not for sort of you know sexual slavery, but um, kind of incarceration in uh, detention camps by mm. an Italian man during World War Two in Germany, and he later on sued the German government uh, for for damages, uh, and the Italian Supreme Court uh, in that in that case the lower courts in Italy refused jurisdiction in the case. They refused to even sort of hear the case, saying that we don't have jurisdiction because of state immunity. But then the Italian Supreme Court said, no, no, we do have jurisdiction uh, in cases of grievous sort of violations of human rights. Mm-hmm. Courts do have jurisdiction against foreign states. And he, they sent it back to lower court to be decided again. Mm-hmm. But then um, German state appealed to the International Court of Justice and the ICJ said, no, the Italian Supreme Court is wrong, state of immunity applies here, and simply upheld the principle. So, again, uh, our, our law, right. second law, the law court, basically just applied that rule. And finally, because this is another controversy that has occurred recently in Korean society, this uh, kind of violent attack by the Belgian ambassador's wife, can you just talk about briefly about how sovereign immunity also applies to this case? Right. So, uh, diplomats in Korea uh, and their families enjoy what's known as diplomatic immunity. This is kind of an extension of state immunity because the diplomats are representing their states uh, when they're stationed in the foreign state. Uh, the immunity that's enjoyed by their own state basically applies to them uh, in, in that foreign state. So they are immune to you know criminal uh, proceedings, uh, civil lawsuits, uh, and so forth. And there is uh, actually a uh, a UN convention that uh, grants and recognizes uh, this immunity on diplomats and their families that we are also party to. Um, so currently, you know, as much as we want to hold the Belgian ambassador's wife uh, responsible for her acts, um, unless Belgium agrees to waive immunity on their behalf, or unless the ambassador's, ambassador's term ends and she no longer has diplom- diplomatic immunity, it's actually not possible for us to be able to, uh, you know, bring her to court. Right. So we can only kind of see cooperation, much as um, you know, New Zealand Prime Minister did with President Moon uh, a couple of years ago when there was, you know, um, untoward happening in the, the Korean. Um, embassy in New Zealand. And so, again, we come back to diplomatic relations.
As you say, with the 2015 agreement, or as uh, most diplomats enjoy some level of immunity, uh, you might not like the situation, but uh, those are international agreements that are recognized, uh, broadly speaking, and so there really is not much uh, we can do about it. But we certainly understand uh, these issues uh, much better, despite the contentious nature of it. Professor Choi Gyeong, as always, thank you very much for joining us. Look forward to talking to you again next week. Thank you. That was new seminar with Professor Choi Young. We are moving on to part four. We've got TM Views and TM Future up ahead. Stay tuned.